Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Armando. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I have been following your stuff, listening to what you read and listened to and watched what you've had to say on social media, and I please forgive me, I have never reached out, and um, and I think recent conversations have just... Um, permitted us an ideal opportunity to connect and invite you here on the podcast. I know you've got some big ideas and bold opinions about some things about the fundraising profession, so I'm looking forward to that conversation today. Um, I think you're very informed in a really good place and posture to to speak to some some important issues. So uh, I'm I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today, um, Armando. But before we dive into that, how about we just uh, ask you to introduce yourself? Hey, folks. Um, my name is Armando Enrique Sumaya. I'm a 35-year fundraising uh, nerd, I guess, uh, a zealot. I've been a development officer. I've been a consultant. I speak. I train all over the country, all over the world now, I guess. And uh, I'm very passionate about uh, major gifts prospecting, diversity, social justice, and inclusion, 
and you know changing the way we fundraise uh, dramatically in this country. Um, so I guess that would be a, I'm a I'm a Chicano from California, and uh, a, a proud father. Ooh, I like that. I don't think. Armando, I'm going to have to ask you to tell me a little bit more about that because I'm a proud father too. You're a little older than I am. Uh, my my oldest is uh, my oldest sure. is in college this year, but we have four children, and um, sometimes I really feel like I'm letting other things get in the way of playing that role. I got to say that the podcast, I mean the pandemic, the pandemic, not the podcast, the pandemic, I think actually afforded us dads. Um, some opportunities to maybe even step up our game a little bit in terms of just being dads at home for a while. Um, sure. But tell me a little bit about that. I want to know what that means. Well, my my, my girl's married. Yeah. Uh, she's thirty three, and uh, she's a well. How can I put it? She's a world art scholar and art curator at a major museum yeah. in Los Angeles, and she's a, a real yeah. a ceiling breaker. And uh, in Mexican Spanish, we have this term chingona, which means sort of, uh, I'm trying to think of the American equivalent, just like a, <clears throat> uh, a real tough yeah. lady who gets things done, who's uh, hands-on, and that's my girl. She's uh, something, she's, I couldn't be proud of her. If, if she had told me this is what she was going to be when she was two years old, I would have gone did out she of my get this, joy. Did she get so that? Uh, did real, she get that? Did she get that from her mom or her dad or a blend of both? She would say a blend of both, but there's definitely a lopsided sort of, you know, I'm a door kicker. I'm a fundraiser. I'm not your normal fundraiser. I talk about fundraising in ways that people either roll their eyes or stand yeah. up in a chair, one of the two. But um, I'm yes. a major gifts prospector, so yeah. I hunt, you know. Uh, and so she's, yeah, no, I, I have an aggressive spirit. always have. I started out in the peace movement knocking yeah. on doors for five years. That's how I started fundraising, not at a university not a non-profit yes. as we understand it. I call it keep the lights on fundraising because uh, it's literally yeah. hustling every night with a clipboard in your hand. Yeah. Knocking on doors in L.A. So that's how I start fundraising. You know, That's exciting, Armando. So we ask our um, we ask our guests to come on to the podcast with a big idea or bold opinion. I don't generally – I think I have a sense of knowing the direction this conversation is going to go, but I don't ask my guests to tell me exactly what their opinion is. Um, and we just unravel it from sure. there. So what do you got for us? Well, um, you know, I've watched the whole decolonize philanthropy yep. conversation. I've watched the entire DEI conversation yep. around nonprofits. And it's true. Yep. It's a horror show. But my big, my big bold idea is the entire decolonization conversation out there is literally yeah, okay. missing the entire point. Uh, we're, we're literally, uh, when I hear people talking about, first of all, they're talking about philanthropy. Are they talking about all of the nonprofit world? No, nope. they're talking about institutional giving yeah. foundations and missing from that conversation yeah. are fundraisers yeah. like me. Okay. So who makes philanthropy happen? Fundraisers. Who makes 80% of philanthropy happen? Fundraisers, individual giving is eighty right. percent of philanthropy, and this, it's missing from the entire conversation. Philanthropy is not what foundations give; they're yeah. part of philanthropy, and people are terrified to say this to foundations. I'll give you a, a crazy example. I wrote an article not too long ago, which was called "You Don't Belong Here" about Latinos in the nonprofit yes, world. And it was read read sixteen hundred times. It was shared seventy nine times, which is fabulous. I wrote an article 
for the Chronicle Philanthropy, an op-ed, March 11th. And it's literally about this subject. It's criticizing the foundation community. It was read 1,500 times yeah. on my LinkedIn, I could see. And it yes. was shared six times. Because people are afraid to say, foundations, I think you got it wrong. Okay, because nobody yeah. wants to be denied a grant. And I don't think foundation people feel that way. I think there's just an intimidation and inequality of power there. But if we really want to change and do true social justice, DEI, decolonize, yeah. whatever term you want to use, community-centric fundraising, yeah. whatever it is, it's about fundraising. You have to change fundraising because philanthropy now – Philanthropy, the nonprofit fundraising world is focused yeah. on old white men. That is our, yeah. our fundraising focus. So I've made a calculation recently that Latinos in the U.S. have a giving potential, a totally unrealized giving potential so far, of $24.7 billion a year. That's because we're, you know, a huge part of the economy. We're almost 20% of the population, but we're completely ignored by the nonprofit world, ignored. So that what ignored looks like in a statistic is foundations give Latinx-focused nonprofits about 1.8% of their giving. On boards of directors in California, in California, under 3% of the, uh, the boards have Latinos on them. And then overwhelmingly, we're looking at tokenization. Yes. Here. We're not looking at powerful, successful yeah. Latinos who can write big checks. So what's missing from the entire DEI decolonization conversation is prospect research, fundraising yeah. uh, is the solution, literally. It's not, It's not. hey, let's ask yeah. our white leaders for power. When I hear the leaders of decolonization conversation talking about this and you get to the end of it, the solution is, hey, yeah. white leaders, give us power. So I, I've been a fundraiser for 35 years. I've heard this argument yeah. 20 years ago. And yeah. not a lot has changed, okay? So what we need to do, in my mind, is change the way we fundraise. We need to empower people of color with their own communities and their own money. It, it's, it's done. It's not something where Latinos don't give. That's unfortunately, you know, racism and implicit bias. And often the people saying that aren't fundraisers. Um, and so this is what I'm, I'm saying is the entire conversation now is missing the point is that it's not about foundation giving. It's about changing fundraising. If you want to change a nonprofit uh, organization, yeah. take any organization, start with a, a diverse board that's a black woman and a white guy who can write the same darn check. Okay, that's Excuse power. Me, yes. That's equity. Because money is power. Money is power. We, we don't like yeah. to say that, but it's true. And the way you get to that point of the black woman and the white guy on the board is – Major gifts work, major gifts prospecting, prospect research. It's fundraising. If you do DEI in your fundraising, you will change your organization fundamentally from the start, from the top down. The bottom up, too. It just, so, there's ways to talk about that. But that's so what's Armando, missing the conversation. One of the things I'm starting to realize mm -hmm. is I'm listening to the same conversations that you are, and I'm starting to feel the same way, and I'm thinking about some of the critiques that I've made on the profession for quite really? some time. Um and I'm really tired of buzzwords because I think we hide behind buzzwords. Mm -hmm. um, I think the issue is, and, 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 and tell me if you put, please push back on this notion, because I think the when we talk about fundraising, I think 
the problem is, is that neither of the camps that are sort of at odds right now, neither of them are saying to fundraisers that they need to be, they need to be pushing for donor facing work. Like if you're not seated at the lunch table, one of the things I learned early in my career, if I'm not seated at the lunch table, I can't push for justice and I can't push for much of anything else either. And so I think we've got too many fundraisers that are quite content sitting in roles, you know, mechanizing fundraising processes and ultimately not sitting in front of donors for whom they can influence and make much more meaningful work for themselves and and push the agenda in ways, you know, if, if we let our power, if fundraisers let their power sort of exist in direct response mm-hmm. and in planned in in uh, special events and the 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 the, the, the other arms link tactics that we typically use, that's I think where we're giving power away. The most powerful gifts I think we can raise is across the lunch table. So. Uh, I, there's a term in the Navy, the silent service, which yeah. refers to submarines, people in the submarines. Fundraising is the silent service. I actually wrote an op-ed about this. It's on my yeah. LinkedIn if anybody wants to read it. And it's literally, we are the silent profession because we don't want to get fired. We have 14-month survivability on our, most of our jobs. That's that's our turnaround time yeah. on most jobs, 14 months right now. It used to be 16 months. And, count, and do note that counts universities where you get much longer tenures. So we are very fragile people. Our boards and our bosses overwhelmingly don't know anything about fundraising. Okay. Overwhelmingly, we are evaluated by people who yes. don't know anything about fundraising. So let's say that out loud. And so, yeah, I want to keep my job. I don't want to be the guy who speaks up on this issue and looks like, you know, he's causing trouble. I don't want to criticize boards. I don't want to criticize foundations. My boss could find out I could lose my job. So it's not a safe power situation. I don't think fundraisers are cowards. I think they're rightly afraid of their jobs. This is bad for my career to talk this way. But this is, like I said, 35 years I've seen it all. And I've seen cycles that we just never learn. You know, most organizations, the problem with what I said before is that fundraising is the solution to social justice in the nonprofit world. The problem is most Foundations and nonprofit leaders don't want to invest in fundraising. They don't want to hear about it. Are we to bring us, you know, they want to cut it, if anything. So I just, I just had two back to pack podcast, podcast conversations with guests prior to recording this conversation with you. One individual is, would be in the more traditional camp, what we'd call donor centered fundraising stuff, you know, the more, and clearly in works in higher education, Mm -hmm. for example, the other individual is in the, We'll call it the Seattle camp or the community centered camp, um, woman of color, for example. Sure. The uh, and and she's not happy in her job. She's not happy in her job because she's working for yeah. an institution that's playing by old school white white philanthropy sort of rules, and 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 part of what I don't think is being talked about is is you can have at a and I think this is in between the lines and in some ways what you're very directly saying, look, we can fight, we can fight and spit and banter all we wanted each other about buzzwords and ideologies and stuff. But ultimately, if you're signing on for an organization that puts you in a marginalized role that says you have to keep quiet and conform to our expectations, what does all this stuff matter? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. 
I mean, community-centered fundraising, donor-centered fundraising. I was raised sure. on donor-centered fundraising. I'm super, I'm super psyched for the whole community-centered yes. fundraising model. It's great. And it's, but from my mind, I've always been community-centered fundraising because I would never let the donor drive uh, yeah. the program. That's what was drilled into yes. my head when I was a young man. Was, and so I've turned down $5 million gifts because they wanted to take us yes. someplace. We didn't want to go. Yep. They wanted to tell us our program. And I'm like, you know, here's your ch- literally, here's your check back. I said those words. And so for me, it's always been community-centered. Are there institutions that will twist, turn, warp their program to yeah. get money? Absolutely. Are there organizations that are not about the community? Absolutely. So I think they're righteous about that. At the same time, that's the way all development officers should be normally. Um, and for me, the solution isn't let's have a conversation. I mean, I'm a little <laughs> more militant because I hear them saying, let's have conversations. <laughs> the hell with conversations, okay? No, I mean, yeah. come on. It's not changing. And asking white people, white yes. leaders for power, share your power, share the wealth. I mean, unless your name is Vladimir Lenin, we're not going to share the wealth, okay? All right? And so the solution is, you know, only 36% of high net worth individuals um, are philanthropic, 36%. We need to improve fundraising. We need to improve that apartheid we have where universities and hospitals are the haves. They have all the power. They have 200 staff. They have prospect researchers. They have major gifts teams. They have huge budgets. Boards that love them, that invest yeah. in them, that pay them well, and the rest of the nonprofit world, which sucks at fundraising, okay? Because they don't want to invest in it. Boards of directors, EDs, treat it like it's a spinach, and they're eight years old, okay? I just wrote an op-ed that's called The Fish That Hit It Swimming, and that's how nonprofit leaders treat fundraising, like it's <laughs> yeah. disgusting, like it's something they have to do, put it on, on the back burner, and guess what, <clears throat> you know? If you don't have good fundraising, you don't have a good program. I remember, I, I remember, so I, remember I read one. an article. I put this in my first book, and you're probably familiar with the statistic, but and I might even misquote it. But there was a study that basically came out. I don't know. This was probably a decade ago, and they were basically looking at the two powerhouse, the two powerhouse fundraisers in Los Angeles, or UCLA and USC. And between those two institutions, I think they basically figured out they had 750 development professionals between the two of them. Right. Right. Okay. So, and then, and then you've got every other charity in the count in LA County that's trying to do whatever the hell they're trying to do. And if you think that bantering over an ideological framework is actually going to get you anywhere when USC and UCLA has a powerhouse of 750 people, you're fighting the wrong problem. Am I right? <laughs> exactly. Right. If you want power for Latinos, that's what I'm doing. I've started the first Latinx fundraising institute. Yeah. It's called Somos El Poder. Yes. We are the power, literally. And it's a profession, it's it's hyper professional development for Latinx best practices fundraising. Simple. And the idea is Instead of complaining, the foundation's not giving you money. Instead of complaining about wealth disparities, let's find that $24 billion in our yep, people yep. I was telling you about earlier. Let, in whatever community you're in, you know, of course, every institution is not going to raise tens of millions more a year. Some will. But with a little work, it's like anything. If you learn and study yeah. it, you'll get better at it. 
than if you invest in it. And so I really want to have nonprofit leaders, Latinx ones, and all people of color, invest in fundraising. It's power. And, and I've seen countless examples across the country of small and medium nonprofits raise major gifts. They're beating, they're beating the local college because they're small and nimble, and they've got a six, seven-person staff, and they're, they're doing some incredible things with fundraising. It, it's not rocket science. you know. It's not a rocket to Jupiter. It's done all the time. So I'm a consultant, and that's where I specialize yeah. in small yeah. and medium you, nonprofits. You, you, you get excited about the best. same thing I do because – so I've been doing these road shows. We do, we've done them up until the pandemic. The pandemic obviously puts us, you know, put that on pause, but I would routinely have in any given city, the 25 to 35 fundraisers in a room. And if there's a, a woman of color, for example, or say, for example, if there's a, a Latino gentleman in the room, that's the person for the whole damn time that I'm generally talking to. And what I'm generally saying to them, what I'm generally saying <laughs> oh, to them, even though there's yeah. 34 other people in the room, I'm like, look, if you can have, if you can see the power that you already have, if you can see the power that you already have. And if you'll get in front of that donor and you'll insist on things that are bolder than probably what your boss wants you to insist on, you'll raise a whole hell of a lot more money and you'll find a lot more meaning in it. And, and honestly, I don't hear anyone, perhaps other than maybe you, and you and I have never talked, I don't hear anyone talking like that. <laughs> nope. Nobody is. You don't, And you know why? Because I'm a <laughs> fundraiser, right? So I'm not a program officer. I'm not a foundation head. There's a big wall between foundation people and fundraisers. Do fundraisers not talk. want to? Okay. okay. I, I had a woman, Hannah. She's a, she's a woman down in Los Angeles. She was on the podcast a couple of weeks. It would go, okay, you know, Hannah. Okay. I know yes. Hannah. She, she, I, I she's a brilliant woman, bold. She's pushing things. And what she's saying to me is, is we as fundraisers need to see and understand the power that we have, which it ultimately begs the question, are we hiring the damn wrong people? Are the, do we have the wrong people in these jobs or are they being so squashed by their employers that we need to change the way that these relationships are structured? We need to change the fundamental relationship. Founda uh, foundations. Boards of directors and EDs need to have that look in the mirror moment and stop. And I literally write op-ed so they can <laughs> read them at the board meetings so they right. can say, is this us? Because is, is this us? Because it is not safe to be a development officer. It's a crazy profession, okay? Uh, because your survivability is low. Your turnover rate is low. Because, again, people have unrealistic expectations. 64% of development officers have bad uh, not good relationships yeah. with their leadership, 64%, right? And the number one reason people turn over and leave is unrealistic expectations. And one of the worst things you can do in a job is succeed. Because if you raise good gifts, your goals go poof through the roof because people don't so do know we what need it to takes come, to raise Do we that. need to come to grips with so, the fact that we're in an inferior role and that we fight amongst ourselves as if actually that's the problem? It's like we're all in middle school and high school and we don't realize that we're not really the problem because what I see playing out in the fundraising community right now, we're all seeing this play out on social media is you've got different camps that are literally spitting and throwing things at each other. And I'm thinking, look, people, you're all basically sure. in these marginalized roles and we got to step up our game. Look at donor centered to me, good donor centered right. fundraising. I, is thought, I have thought the same thing time and time again. 
It's 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 a, yeah. a false difference. Yes, there are those people, and often the donor centered people um, are yeah. going to be white guys at universities because that's the way we were raised. But if you're a good fundraiser, you will take you will one find the right donor, and be, prospect research, and they will be turned on by what you're doing naturally. You will not have to twist any arms, do any funky things both ways. So to me, if you're serving your institution properly, then it's community centered, natural and donor centered. You should, they should love helping the community. If they don't, then you should probably have them as donors. There are examples. Yeah. Where they, the donor pulled their gift because they weren't getting what they wanted. Okay. And that's too bad, you know, but you've got to serve your community. It's job one, whatever your community is. And so I, I think most donors, the vast majority, support this yeah, um, and understand this. Yes, are there jerks? Are there guys who are power hungry because they got too much money? You know, are there, you know, the white supremacy being pushed on us? Absolutely. But that, as fundraisers, ethically, that's our job to guard against that. Now, if we're in places where that's not supported, then we need to get another I mean, job. Lynn, tw- I'm sure you know who you know, Lynn that's Twist all there is. Lynn it. Twist has been teaching fundraising for years, and she's been talking about the issues that a lot of us have with money and so forth. And in her book, she talks about the idea that far too many of us don't feel like we have the assets or the sufficiency just to be confident, for example, at that lunch table. So you've got these organizations that are sort of running around with this deficit mindset, constantly talking about needs assessments and stuff. And so the the whole narrative is just focused on what we don't have rather than what we do. But in her book, she even talks about the idea that when the donor is not the right donor, you turn that gift down. And I think we're just all so desperate Mm -hmm. and hungry for affirmation and for money that we can't strive towards these higher aspirations. And I really don't think that. Yeah. So uh, uh, what's missing in 90% of nonprofits, even big universities, is excellent prospect research. This is the, there's no magic wand in fundraising, but the, the huge difference between APRA and AFP, prospect researchers and fundraisers, there's another giant chasm between the two. I, I'm one of the few guys who've spoken at both APRA yeah. and AFP ICON every year yeah. uh, for, for many years. And that's because the solution DEI, the solution to donor-centric, community-centric, is finding the right people to begin with. I get to billionaires because I do my research. I find out exactly who cares about this. Not somebody who kind of, and we're going to work on it and twist it, but most institutions, including big universities, don't either know about prospect research or don't use it effectively. They use it passively. They don't use it as a management guidance tool. Um, but, you know, that's, for me, the big difference we need to do here is not have that conversation about donor or community center. We need to raise um, fundraising for smaller and medium institutions. We need we need to get that disparity and make it go like this more. Yes, it's a long term process. Yes, it's something that there's no have flip, we also you know, switch you can flip. Have we also but it's, okay? You and I are in the same camp on advocating for somebody who's doing donor facing major gift type work. But I I have also thought we have over professionalized and over credentialed and overqualified who's actually mm. capable of doing major gift okay. work. I had a, I had a woman here in central Pennsylvania who had never raised a dollar in her life, put her in a role, gave her a, basically a five step ski, a, a five simple rules is what 
we talk about five simple rules to adhere by within five years. She's raising six times the money for the organization she's working for as they had raised before we have, we have exaggerated who's qualified. And, and then we've also overinflated the value of these, these employees to the point where only USC and UCLA can afford them. I mean, the whole economics of the thing is, it's true. Major gifts work is, yes, it's highly paid and it's considered only for universities and hospitals by a lot of people. Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. It's over credentialed. It's, it's good relationship building. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ministers and Catholic priests out there that are major gifts officers. (laughs) Don't even, they don't even know it. The best major gifts officers in the country are nuns. Okay. And uh, they don't even know it. They just do it. The hospital I was born at, Santa Marta Hospital in East Los Angeles, the nuns there are all major gifts people. They're awesome. They're killers, you know? And uh, I do think that's the case. And I do think small major giving programs at small and medium institutions that have good history, good program, it's one of the most powerful things you can do in fundraising, but nobody talks about it because all the consulting institutions out there are focused on big institutions. So the rich get richer. Yeah. The poor stay poorer. And the pivotal group here is the ED at the nonprofit. That's, you know, a five, $10 million nonprofit that has one major, one development officer doing 16 jobs. That's the person that needs to stop and go, okay, yeah. this is messed up. Okay. This guy's talking about let's diversify our fund. COVID should have taught that to people that, you know, you're made of glass because you've got two foundation funders and, you know, that's dangerous. You need to diversify yeah. and build your base. But it's just crass financial uh, uh, reality that if you're in Atlanta and you don't have any African-American donors, yeah, you're right, a fool. Right, okay? Right. There's tons of wealth there. I mean, I can point you to hospitals in California and Atlanta, uh, hospitals, where you look at the board. It's like they're not just white. They're all blonde. It's like, what's going on here? Come on. Who's, who's not doing their prospecting and identifying what community are we serving? Let's look like that community and let's find the wealthy powerful, influential, well-connected people. It doesn't have to be all of yeah. those in that community because most of the time it's going to be the college roommate. It's going to be the corporate foundation officer or it'll be the local minister. That's how they diversify. They tokenize. We don't need to do that. We're fundraisers. You're, you're, you're just making me, so you're, you're me, really making, so I have been working, I, I have been talking to a colleague of mine a lot about the idea that fundraising needs to look more like a skill than it looks like a profession. And because we have professionalized it, credentialed it, um, uh, you know, once you have a credential, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're raising hell of a lot of money. It just means that you've checked all the boxes. And, and a lot of the consulting work that I, for example, do, and perhaps the work you do, is I'm actually working with executives who need to learn the skill of fundraising. And I'm teaching them the same things that it sounds like you want to teach a, you know, a, a, anyone, quite frankly. Um, and it's the same skills I was talking about with Hana, that if we could just teach these young people that are coming into the field, you know, give me a give me and you a room full of CCF, you know, Seattle-based CCF fundraisers, and we'll be having them raise a hell of a lot of money because we're going to basically tell them to do their prospect research and take people out to lunch. It's not that complicated. It's not. It's So the original credentialing idea was to get respect for our profession, and which I couldn't agree with more because our profession is phenomenally yeah. disrespected. Okay. It's the only profession 
where people think they can judge us who know nothing. I'm not going to tell a hand surgeon or an accountant, hey, you're not doing your job right. Yeah. Because I don't know diddly about that. Okay. But there's everyone yeah. thinks they know fundraising. Everyone thinks it's easy. You just, you know, call rich people. And so for me, I think that's uh, crucial to our, our, our profession is that we get respect, but we're not going to really, I, I don't think it's made the difference to have a credential. I, I think there are some people who understand what that is, but I think it's more about really saying out loud and challenging uh, the whole ignorance and rejection of fundraising um, and really calling it out because it, it's essential that we do so. And the, the reasons this isn't changing because there's only okay. one crazy so, old yeah, man. Okay, so you're talking about talking being about the one this. crazy old man. So you're, you're sounds like you're 20, you're, 50, you're 20 years older than I am. So I'm 43 this year. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I don't know, how old, how old are you? Man. How old are you? Knife out of my back. 58. Okay, so you're 15 years older than I am. So you're 15 years older than I am. And I was just on the podcast with a, a young woman who's 15 year, years younger than I am. And we're all talking as critically and as carefully about fundraising as I think I've ever heard people talking about it. And I'm wondering if if some of this is going to look very different. What I'm starting to pick up on is there's a generation of young fundraisers who are about 10 years into their career. It's the same people I was writing my first book to that are thinking more critically about the work that they're doing. And they're starting to question whether the boss has any idea what the hell he or she is doing. And is some of this yep. just because of the timing with which you and your peers came into the profession? I, I'm constantly saying here on the podcast, and my listeners hear me say this: that fundraising's in its mess, in its in its messy adolescence. That's why I refer to us as behaving like we're in high school, because we're literally behaving like high school students when we need to. But what we also know about human development is, when we become young adults, we learn how to form meaningful relationships with people, and that's what I think you're kind of getting at is is the idea that. Once we once we sort of mature to the next level, we're going to have to know how to have healthy relationships with our donors and we're going to have to know how to push certain agendas. And I think that's kind of the tension that nobody's really addressing. Yeah, it's because the conversation right now about philanthropy, about fundraising is dominated by people with fairly yeah. safe jobs who have lots of um, support to speak yeah. out. And that's foundation folks. Um, so people in fundraising overwhelmingly are very yeah. conservative. Um, and, and, and I don't mean that politically. I mean, they're quiet. You know, some of the folks in, in community-centered fundraising have been the loudest so far. Dan, yeah. Dan Pelota's video, you know, that's crazy. That was the video everyone went, thank you. I wrote an article about seven years ago called The, Cri the Sh Crisis of Short Tenures for Development Officers. Most of the articles I read get read a couple thousand times. This one got read 29,000 times because people are desperate to say this out loud. You know, we are underappreciated and we're the solution to lots of things in the nonprofit world. Yeah. DEI being one of them, um, you know, and changing this country dramatically, too. If we can get people to really invest in, in fundraising for community organizations, it won't always be Harvard making the big bucks. Maybe, you know, there'll be a little organization with a yeah. $10 million yeah. gift, a $20 million gift. That could happen. That happens, and so we need to change that game. We need to we need to play with the, with the big girls and boys, and, and and change that scale. It's it's literally how we're going to change the nonprofit world. 
and when it changed that scale, I yeah. mean, include the whole community, not just well, old is that part guys. of the is that part of the the problem too? Is that we and the fun? So I watched. Um, you'll you'll recall the uh, the I've talked about this a couple of time on, times on the podcast. The Robert Smith gift, Robert Smith, black gentleman who gave a. $40 million to the students at Morehouse College in Atlanta. And I watched how a lot of my colleagues, presumably they were all white fundraising colleagues. I watched how they, in, in various different ways on social media, sort of flinched. It was like this was a this was a, a player who sort of came out onto the scene that they had never seen play like that before. Um, you know, it was like that ball player who gets out on the field and knocks the ball, you know, clear out of the park. And you, you're like, where did that guy come from? Um and, and I also, and at the same time, I, I oftentimes remind myself, I was working with a private school in, uh, in, in Austin and 40% of the student population at that school this is a very, very well-to-do private K through eight school in Austin. And 40% of the students are Latino students. And these parents are paying top dollar tuition for their kids to go to school there. These aren't broke these are broke families. These people have affluence. When I was in, when I was in Washington, DC, when I was in Washington, DC, uh, right after uh, president Obama had gotten elected his first time, anybody who lived North of PG County knew that Obama raised a ton of money in the black community in Prince George's County. It, 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 my question is, is Armando, do we not know that there are people of color out there who've actually got bucks? Who's got money? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Uh, University of Texas, Austin, just raised a $20 million gift from yeah. Alvarez. Yeah. Alvarez there locally. And that's, who knows about that? Yeah. Nobody knows about that. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, overwhelmingly, there's tons of implicit bias toward Latino funders, yes. Latino donors. Uh, I tell people that we have a two points. Six trillion dollar annual GDP as a country, we would be the eighth largest country in the in the world. And people who tell me, oh, you know, Latinos, well, you know, they're not really mature in their fundraising and they don't give. I point them to St. Jude's Children's Hospital, yeah. great organization, yeah. not knocking it. But most Latinos will never use that hospital. You know, maybe thankfully, never see it, don't even know where it is. Ask any Latino in the country. You know, St. Jude's Children's Hospital, the same reaction we'll say is, yeah, my mom gives to that. Yeah. Because St. Jude invests uh, telephones, radio, yeah. print, TV, Uni- Univision, Telemundo. They're everywhere, right? So they, they figured out, hey, Latinas give to mm-hmm. sick kids. And they're putting money into it because they're making tens of millions. I don't know the exact number a year. I know there's one radiothon they've had over five years that raised $111 million. That's yeah. the, one, the one number I've got. But who is the Diabetes Association doing that in the U.S.? The number one killer of yeah. Latinos? Nope. Yeah. Is the cancer? Is it? Nope. The, because they don't have the memo that we – not only do we give, uh, because there's studies out there that show we don't give because we're not asked. I could bet you there's a lot of that situation, too, with the African-American and other communities, too. Uh, but people have to realize we can find our own power through giving. So in, in Georgia – African Americans yeah, yeah, found their yeah. power. It's driving recently. my and I and it's, it's driving my white Bogey, conservative parents who live in South Georgia absolutely bonkers. <laughs> so in Adi, in Arizona, in Arizona, the, the the Latinos there hated Sheriff Arpaio and got sick of complaining uh, about it. You know, more, no more chias, as we say, and they basically threw him out. And then they looked at each other and said, "You yeah. know, we did that." 
and then they flipped yeah. that freaking state because they, they found that they are their own power. We can do the same thing in fundraising when people re- reach a goal together. It ch- and I've seen this uh, more anecdotally, not as a regular thing. That's what I want to do is, is tip that scale. Do people realize they can do it themselves? They can raise money. They can get active. They can focus that money and, and address problems in their community for their children, for their lives, whether it's climate change or the drug problem in their neighborhood, whatever it is, it's it's incredible, um, and that's it, it's not just hey big white foundation here's a grant to your institution, it's we get it, we're self empowered. Fundraising can self empower a whole generation, and it, it's it's that whole thing yeah. of we get it ourselves changes people dramatically. That's why fundraising is beautiful. Fundraising is powerful. So if we, our nonprofit leaders see us raise our own money. It's going to change people away from, you know, feeling like, you know, they can't and they're oppressed and we are oppressed. Yeah. We can push back. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not denying there's not white supremacy. Yes. yes. The system's rigged against us. All yes. true, all true. But the solution isn't to wait for the white bus to show up and give us, you know, a, a barrel full of money. The solution is to complain about that. Yes. To rally against that, absolutely, but also to say, look amongst us and go, what can we do now, and do it. So it's 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 I'm oversimplifying. I don't know, I don't know if you're oversimplifying it so much as we haven't stepped back and sort of in uh, sort of inventoried our systems because I think there's, I sort of see the fundraising systems in most organizations as sort of being divided into three pots, and you have sort of that upper echelon of the top 10% of the donors, and it's even usually a smaller fraction of that. And those are the ones that we typically presume to be or perceive to be the old white guys that are writing the big checks. And then there's the sort of the direct mail sort of category, which is the very large databases and and typically smaller giving Tuesday type gifts. But there's a, there's a range of donors that could perhaps give, you know, at my, at my uh, graduate school, I was talking to the team over there, you know, they, in between those two categories, they have a smaller category that could be counted on for, you know, good, good five and even six figure gifts, but they won't invest in that category of donor. And it's a far more diverse pool of donors as well. Um, So they're not, and this is over in Philadelphia. So they're not the, the richest mainline old white folks, you know, in, in Philadelphia necessarily donors, but there, it's a much more diverse pool of donors that they could be routinely asking for $25,000 for. But also it's the donor who $25,000 is not going to come through via direct mail and it's not going to come through on Giving Tuesday. Right? Yeah. Poor, poor, yeah, right. Poor Giving Tuesday is. Definitely, um, I don't know what you call it. It's kind of everyone does it, and some donors resent it now. Uh, what I've heard from people say, "Oh, Giving Tuesday," yeah. asked by everybody, so they spend too much money on it. it. So it's kind of boomeranged a little bit. Maybe I'm a grumpy old man, uh, but no, the in, investing in a diverse donor base, not just in mail, uh, is, yeah. is incredibly important. So you need to every person that has one development officer which is the overwhelming in nonprofits out there. I'm going to say conservatively 70% of nonprofits that have a development officer have one. Um, you need to diversify, you know, and there's never a problem funding program staff. You know, if, if they say, Oh, we can't afford three de- development officers. It's like, well, you've got nine programs and you happily add more. 
anytime you got five cents. Um, and the whole idea, of course, is the investment mentality, which is development is program. You, you, you've, so you've referenced uh, prospect research a couple of times, and I have, I tend to be much more critical of that particular pro, uh, system in, in perhaps in, in different reasons than you are, uh, because you were describing, for example, how prospect research informs the hunt. And so you can actually pursue these individuals and make sure you're pursuing the right people. But I think in some institutions, and I know we see this in higher education and healthcare, they're using a lot of the prospect research just simply to exploit and create a very expedious, predictable sort of process. And I kind of wonder in some of the language I'm routinely using, and I've got it in the forthcoming book, is this idea that if fundraising could move away from being an, uh, sort of an exploiting the what is familiar and known to more of an exploring what is unknown, which is ultimately what I think a lot of these calls are for, learn how to explore opportunity, almost like you're describing you know, you say I'm I'm out for the hunt like a fundraiser. Basically, you're you're describing yourself as being dropped in the jungle, knowing there's treasure to be found and knowing you're going to find it. And I don't think we have fundraisers out there who want to do their work that way. Well, there's nothing wrong with a fundraising pros- major gifts prospecting system. OK, I don't think mm-hmm. it exploits yeah. uh, people to some degree. Uh, are we going to the same old people? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Do we need to expand uh, the base? Do we need to expand yeah. who we're approaching? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I got a a million dollar gift from a Latino yeah. for the arts a couple of years ago, and he went to a major university on the West Coast. And I know the prospect researchers at that university, so I talked to them about you know this guy and things like that, and. They basically, through implicit bias of a white researcher, kind of saw his last name and went, oh, yeah. This comp- they didn't look at yeah. his company. I did. You know, that was worth $467 million bucks yeah. sold back to Google. But they looked past his, his last name. They did oh, no. But that little implicit bias is, is missing, there, is powerful. So the exploring research, yeah. the broadening research, using research as a tool to broaden your base is absolutely essential. The problem with prospect research is that it's overwhelmingly used by the haves. That's a good have not. Right. The have not. Right. That's a good way to put it. You know, I've been in a room with 220 development officers and I've asked them who knows what APRA is and five mm-hmm. people raise their hands. Yeah. Okay. And development execs across the country, especially in the South are wholly unfamiliar with it. And very few, even in major institutions use it as you're talking about, not just a recording, not just as uh, yeah. as passive, but as, you know, they should be the scouts on the horse over the hill, you know, looking for the, the, what's new. And also, they're the, they're the key to diversity. They're the absolute key to And are you using, I have to imagine you're using some of your, when you say prospect research, you're not talking about solely quantitative data, like how much money's in the checking account sort of information. Because I was taught, I was taught no. qualitative prospect research, which was to understand where these people fit in the world and where do I need to show up, and and those sorts of things. And I just don't know that we. That's why I use the word exploit versus explore because when when you shift the prospect research to more of an exploratory nature, um, you explore where the possibilities for relationships are. Right. And that's all, you know, dealing with billionaires, the first thing I've often heard from them is, well, right. you've done your research. 
because yeah. I'm I'm sinking with them. And people ask me, how do you get a million dollar gift from a Latino, you know, multimillionaire? We've never done that. And it's simple. All you do is look at what they care about, at least what you can see publicly and what you're working on. And, yeah. click it, and that's it. But most people don't. The vast majority of fundraisers don't use prospect research effectively. And it's, it's the, literally the silver bullet in so many ways uh, for lots of our problems. But it's a profession that's, you know, the fundraising silent. Prospect research right. is hidden. Okay. Even there's lots of development officers that have shame about prospect research. You know, we want to keep them in the background. They're not invited to things because it's all, oh, it's shameful. Yeah. You're like dumpster diving. It's, it's nasty. It's not, it's all ethical out there. It's done by investment yeah. people all the time. Uh, you know yeah. w- what they're doing, but for nonprofits, it's considered yucky and sticky and disgusting. And so th- that's the problem with fundraising and so Armando, Armando, I've had your attention for 45 minutes. That's about the point we lose our listeners. Um, You've referenced a number of articles that I'm going to put in the show notes. um, And uh, and we'll make sure people know how to find you. If someone is listening to our conversation, they'd like to continue the conversation. How would you like them to find you? Well, they can go to uh, my website, armandozumaya.com. And uh, pop in there or pop into the institute at somoselpoder.org. But, you know, Armando... uh, ArmandoZumaya.com. There's lots of links there to, to link to me and talk to me. Lots of my articles. Or you can go to my LinkedIn and say hi. Uh, there's another. My, it's more okay. up to date with my articles. Well, we will put uh, we will put all that on the thanks on the, a lot on the uh, on the show notes. And uh, you're always welcome back, sir. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.